for me, it's all family-based. I need to know and want to know how this mandated program has affected families. And I, I don't think that there has been a lot of research in this area because as we keep adding new disorders, we cannot compound the challenges that families might face um, receiving a mandated test in the newborn period. Um, so that's, that's my personal, what newborn screening research should head towards for me. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm really supportive of all the different aspects of newborn screening research from implantation to new treatment and management, hopefully less expensive treatment and management. Um, more, uh, hopefully the research will lead to more accessibility um, of uh, both newborn screening and um, treatment and management for the families. Welcome to the Newborn Screening Spotlight. Today's episode highlights the important role genetic counselors play in the diagnosis, care, and lifelong management of newborn diagnosed with disease through newborn screening. Genetic counseling helps families better understand available treatments and resources and our guest, Sylvia Mann, is a genetic counselor who wears many hats, three to be exact, in her roles as supervisor of the genomic section of the State of Hawaii Department of Health, the co-director of the University of Hawaii Pacific Basin Telehealth Resource Center, and the project director of the Western States Regional Genetic Network. Sylvia's career in genetic counseling began when she received her Master of Science in Human Genetics and Genetic Counseling from Sarah Lawrence College in New York. And this year, in 2022, for over 30 years of excellent efforts to expand and improve newborn screening and the care of individuals diagnosed through newborn screening in one or more states, was recently recognized with the George Cunningham Visionary Award in newborn screening. During today's podcast, Sylvia shares the ways visionaries like Dr. Cunningham played in her own journey to train and inspire current and future genetic counselors. She also shares the exciting news that she'll be developing a new program to train genetic counselors using an innovative model at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska, beginning in 2023. Sylvia's decades of empowering parents, families, patients, and advocates from diverse backgrounds, she lives in Hawaii after all, has resulted in professionalism with a rare combination of genetic expertise, sincere empathy, and a tireless work ethic that has resulted in important conversations and discussions of diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice taking place. Join us all in welcoming Sylvia Mann to the MBSPRN Newborn Screening Spotlight. Hello, this is the Newborn Screening Spotlight. This podcast is about the advancement of rare disease research told by health professionals, researchers, parents, and advocates. This podcast is for you to learn how newborn screening research saves the lives of babies every day through the discovery of new technology and treatment. You will hear stories from experts who treat babies, the families who care for them, and the researchers who make it all happen. We are your co-hosts. I am Dr. Ki Chan. 
And I'm Dr. Amy Brower. We're from the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network, also known as the MDSTRN. Our work is supported by one of the institutes at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, called the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, also known as NICHD. Dr. Chan and I are from the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics, also known as ACMG, and ACMG leads the MBSTRN. Screening babies saves lives every day, and research advances newborn screening by developing new technologies to screen, diagnose, and treat. MBSTRN helps accelerate research by creating tools, resources, and expertise for researchers, doctors, families, patients, and advocates. To learn how you can help advance newborn screening research, advocate for rare disease screening and treatment, and learn about important discovery, become a member of the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network by visiting our website at www.mbstrn.org. Thank you so much, Sylvia, for joining us today for the Newborn Screening Spotlight. I want to start out by saying congratulations on your recent award of the George Cunningham Visionary Award in Newborn Screening at the recent Association of Public Health Laboratories Newborn Screening Symposium. It's given, this award is given to someone who has made the greatest contribution to expanding or improving the screening of newborns by public health agencies in one or more states, and this year's award recipient is you. In the early 1960s, many states that mandated newborn screening within their health departments or state laboratories were working to provide coordination and oversight for newborn screening. Sylvia, can you share with our listeners about the newborn screening system in the state of Hawaii and any specific similarities or differences on the screening system between different states? Sure, Amy. Um, thank you for inviting me on the MBSTRN podcast. And first of all, um, I am very, very grateful for winning the George Cunningham Visionary Award. George Cunningham was the head of the California Newborn Screening Program from the beginning. And he was my mentor as I moved into public health in Hawaii. So I'm very fortunate that I'm also the project director for one of the regional genetics networks that um, the Health Resources and Services Administration funds. So my region is the Western states. It's Alaska, Washington, Idaho, Oregon, California, Hawaii, and Guam. And so I get to see a lot of different newborn screening systems. Um, at the beginning, we had the Oregon system, which was a regional newborn screening lab, and they had contracts with Alaska, Idaho, New Mexico, Hawaii, Guam, Saipan, and some of the military bases. So I got to see what a regional newborn screening system was like. I also have California in my region, which is as big as a country. So I got to see how a really, really big state runs their newborn screening program. And then I have Washington State, who had their own 
centralized newborn screening within Washington state. So I got to see all the various models within my own region of how newborn screening runs. So it was really nice to be able to get to know people, figure out how it works for them, um, how it doesn't work for them, and then bring that knowledge back to Hawaii. Of course, Hawaii is a little bit different because we are the most isolated populated landmass in the entire world. We are about 2,400 miles away from the west coast of the United States. Um, so any type of specialty care that is not available in Hawaii, we actually have to airlift um, our patients back to the mainland. And that airlift is costs about forty to $50,000. Um, so we are very careful with our newborn screening because we want to make sure that it's not just the lab test, it is the entire system of newborn screening. And that's one of the differences that I know that we always have to pay attention to. We have a small state with a low population, and which is about 1.4 million, and a low birth rate, which has dropped to about 16,000 a year now, it used to be 24,000 when I first started with the department about three decades ago. So we contract with a regional lab um, to do our newborn screening. It would not be cost effective for us to have our own lab doing newborn screening in Hawaii. Um, and we uh, FedEx our samples to our current contracted lab, Washington State. And sometimes our samples get there before even the Washington resident samples get there. So I'm very happy about our courier service. Um, and then we have a follow-up team in our health department. So in Hawaii, our system definitely is different because we have to pay attention to so much more being an isolated state with limited resources. Sylvia, in one of our podcast episodes titled Getting on the List, which was led by our co-host, Dr. Amy Brower, we highlighted the nomination process of getting a condition added to the recommended uniform screening panel. However, once the condition is on the rest, the process of Im implementation of the new condition is a bit complex and seems to differ between state to state. After a new condition is added to the rest, can you help demystify the process to our listener? Like what are the next steps in statewide implementation of screening for that new condition in general and in the state of Hawaii? So different states have different processes for adding uh, conditions to the RASP. Um, I can talk most knowledgeably about my region because I work with them all the time. So uh, I've been noticing that in certain states like California, there is legislation that causes what we call harmonization to the rest. So basically, the statute has been changed from the state making the decision on what conditions to add to their newborn screening panel to having a condition added to the recommended uniform screening panel and then having a timeline. So California's is within two years that condition has to be added to their state newborn screening panel. Um, in Hawaii, we have a very different process and we try to not um, have legislation to harmonize to us, mainly because over time, we, as I said earlier, we are an isolated state that has limited resources and then we also have a very diverse population. So the 
National Advisory Committee looks at certain things and doesn't look at certain things. So one of the things that we always have to be cognizant of in Hawaii is how does this disorder that we want to add to our panel work in a diverse population? What's the research? What are the outcomes? Are there variants that have been found? Are the variants um, coming up with the same type of symptoms and need the same follow-up and treatment and management? Or are they different? We also do consider financial um, considerations. The National Committee doesn't consider financial considerations. So in our state, we look at how much does it cost to add this test to our panel? How much does it cost to treat this disorder? Um, how much would it cost? Because we have to send the child to the mainland. We also consider things of how disruptive things would be to a family. Um, because if we have to send a child to the mainland for long-term treatment and management, one parent at least would have to go with the child. And in Hawaii, we have a high cost of living. How would that affect the family and what, you know, what would the family want to do? We have many family representatives on our advisory committee, so they are not hesitant to tell us the um, burdens put upon them when they need to seek treatment, especially when they have to go to the mainland uh, for long periods of time. So in our state, what happens is when a condition is added to the rest, we, the department puts together a task force of specialists that um, work in that area of the disorder. Let's say it's an immunodeficiency. We would have our immunologists um, on the panel. We have family members. We have the labs, the local labs. We have the hospital representatives. We have public health representatives. So the task force goes through all the information that was reviewed by the, Fed, uh, the National um, Advisory Committee and then also looks at things like how much does treatment cost, um, how much does the testing cost. And then they uh, come up with a report that goes to the advisory committee with their recommendation of whether or not we add the disorder in Hawaii and whether there's any special considerations we might want to think about, such as um, do we want to provide carrier information about this disorder? So that would be something the task force would look at. The task force report and the recommendation goes to the full advisory committee that is made up of representatives from every sector that's involved in newborn screening, advocacy organizations, family representatives, public health, primary care providers, specialists, hospitals, laboratories. Um, so they review and then they take a vote on whether we add that disorder to the panel. Part of the vote is the financial part where what I do is I then review all the costs that we have for newborn screening because we're a user fee based system. So everything from the how much the kit would cost us, how much the lab test would cost us, how much the staff costs us, how much um, we want to set aside to pay for people who can't afford newborn screening because um, insurance coverage and finances should never be a reason you don't get newborn screening. Um, we have some treatment um, and we have actually first we have diagnosis um, costs such as we would sequence the CFTR gene um, if you have one or zero mutations from the regular mutation panel of Washington State because the mutations in our population might be 
rarer variants. We don't want to miss those. Uh, so our newborn screening cost includes us doing the CFTR sequencing, um, cost of education, cost of supplies. So it's all added up, and then we divide it by our birth rate, and that's how we come up with our newborn screening fee for newborn screening. So it's all very transparent, and when the advisory committee votes on it, that means that they all agree that that will be the new cost for newborn screening with the addition of the new disorder. And we're lucky that we ha don't have to go back to the legislature to get it added. We can do it. The department is allowed to add the disorder um, to change the fee. We go through administrative rules um, and public hearing to change the fees. But we always have some surplus that we've set aside to start implementing disorders. So it's a it's a much more deliberative process in Hawaii, takes a lot more time and energy, but I think in the end, what it does, it, it gives community ownership of our newborn screening program and what happens with the newborn screening in Hawaii. Thank you, Sylvia. Can you tell us, is that what led to you authoring and publishing this paper on public-private partnership? Yeah, so um, we wanted to make sure that we documented how our newborn screening program came to be in this current form. And so we published an article in the Hawaii Journal of Public Health um, with the history of how the program came to be so that when there is no one left in the department that was working at the time we did this, someone will be able to look up the article and figure out why we do what we do. Great. I think you, you show us a great example of sort of starting the way forward, but looking backwards so that we can all follow in your path and Maybe that comes with from your formal training as a genetic counselor. So I want to say happy genetic counselor awareness month and day. I think we might be almost recording this on the day that we celebrated um, the first Thursday of November each year. So you're one of our favorite genetic counselors. Um, so thinking about your role as a genetic counselor, in fact, in Hawaii, you play many different roles. You're currently the supervisor of the genomic section of the State of Hawaii Department of Health, the co-director of the University of Hawaii Pacific Basin Telehealth Resource Center, and the project director of the Western States Regional Genetics Network. Can you share with our audience how you are involved in newborn screening in all of these different positions? Sure. So... As I already talked about in my role as the project director of the Western States, I get to help support the newborn screening programs in what they do. Um, one of the things that we've been very involved in is that because we have very, very active family advocates in our network, we are always trying to figure out what families want, what families need. So uh, we have done a lot of collaborative projects going to baby expos at, in different states. And for people not familiar with baby expos, they are these massive events where prospective parents or new parents go to and they have every single vendor under the sun that sells anything to do with uh, babies and young children. So everything from baby bottles to, um, to diapers and to, um, to formulas, things like that. So we, we found that that is a great way to uh, find parents that uh, have either recently gone through the newborn screening experience or will be going through it soon. Um, so one of the 
questions we always have is, what type of education do you want before you have newborn screening? And what would you like after you have a presumptive positive result? Um, and then what catches your eye? Because there's, we have to compete with so much other education and advertising. What would catch your eye um, if you were to uh, be in your waiting room of your OB's office? If we had some material out, what would you pick up? And the parents were very, very good at telling us um, what things they liked, what things they didn't like, what would attract their attention, how they want things done. Um, I think one of the things that I've learned recently when we did our most recent um, uh, baby expo pre-pandemic was parents were like, I don't like to read things anymore. Could you make things all on YouTube? Because I just like to watch things on the phone when I'm waiting in the waiting room. And that would be nice. I could watch a YouTube video on what you want to tell me. So um, although as a reader, avid reader myself, I thought, oh, no, (laughs) you want me to make videos instead of something for you to read. Um, But I realized that, you know, I have to address what, my end user wants and so we have started to turn our educational materials from um, fact sheets brochures things like that to more youtube videos um, that people can watch and um, and learn about newborn screening so uh, we are addressing that so that is um, my role as part of the Western states. And then in my role in the Hawaii Department of Health, I'm the supervisor of the genomic section. So the newborn metabolic screening or blood spot screening and the newborn hearing screening programs are under me. And so I take care of most of the and overall administrative support, fund, making sure that we all have money to run the programs, um, troubleshooting when there is a problem, staffing um, the programs, of course, and then just um, helping with any of the extra stuff that our regular program staff just don't have time for because they're busy helping families. Um, So things like if uh, we get requests to fill out forms for um, national organizations or we get asked to participate in some research, or we get uh, a grant opportunity, I would be the one writing the grant. So, um, so that's my role in the, as the health department person. Um, and, you know, things blend well, because sometimes uh, some of these opportunities should be done collaboratively with other newborn screening programs. So it kind of blends both my roles in the health department and in the Western states. November is a special month, besides the time for Thanksgiving. November is a month of family history awareness, as well as genetic counseling awareness. You are one of the very few genetic counselors working in a state public health agency. Can you tell our listeners how you got interested in a career as a genetic counselor? And how does genetic counseling play a role across the lifespan, especially in public health? I had an interesting path to finding about genetic counseling. I have to credit my high school biology teacher and um, the University of British Columbia, where I did my undergrad, because both um, gave me opportunities to learn about genetics. And I really like solving puzzles. And so genetics was perfect for me because basically it was solving puzzles. Um, And in the University of British Columbia, they had um, 
a concentration in genetics under my biology degree. And so I was able to interact with a lot of people working in genetics. Back then, I had no clue that that was groundbreaking, um, that undergraduates did not get that opportunity. Um, when I was in the genetics library um, one time, I came across the article by F. Clark Fraser, and um, he was the doctor that wrote the seminal article about genetic counseling. And I read it, and I thought, this is such an interesting field. I can talk to people and I can do genetics. It's like perfect. It's the perfect blend. So I veered from my pre-med <laughs> to, to uh, wanting to go into genetic counseling. And my mentor, Judy Hall, at that time, she said, yes, you should go to Sarah Lawrence College you do the graduate program there, and then you'll come back and you'll work for me um, at the university uh, medical center. And I said, okay, sure, Dr. Hall, that sounds fantastic. Of course, um, as everybody probably realizes, I never got back to Vancouver. I came to Hawaii and uh, started here as the first formally trained genetic counselor in Hawaii, um, and then had to start a lot of state programs because I was the first one. I was a new graduate. And my geneticist, Dr. Shaw, was like, oh, start a prenatal counseling program. Start this, start that. And I was thinking, oh, okay. And as a naive new graduate, I thought, okay, sure, why why not? Why can't I start a state program? Um, and then I moved to the um, Department of Health uh, after five years of doing clinical um, as the first um, state genetics coordinator. Um, the health department knew that they need to hire someone who knew genetics, they told me that it was something the federal government told them they needed to do to continue some federal funding they were getting. They didn't know what this person was supposed to do. And so the first um, duty of the person once they were hired was to write their job description and then figure out what the genetics plan would be for the state. So um, after I took the job in the health department, um, my first thing I did was write my job description. And then um, it took, uh, I think it took seven years for it to finally become um, codified in our, our personnel uh, uh, records that it was an official position. And then um, started doing focus groups and surveys with all different stakeholders in the state to figure out what we should do for genetics um, in public health. And so uh, we got lots and lots of feedback. The one thing that I found that was most gratifying here is that in Hawaii, we call family ohana. And when we talk to people, they tell us that they consider their ohana their own family that's related to them, their neighbors, their co-workers, are all what they feel are their ohana. Um, and so if they can help by participating in genetics research or providing information or, or doing a family history um, that would help someone in their ohana, they'd be more than willing to do it as long as they had protections so they wouldn't lose their jobs or um, be discriminated against for education. So um, hearing that, one of the things that we did to make sure that we could have people use genetic information throughout a lifespan is we passed um, genetics anti-discrimination legislation, uh, and that really helped 
Hawaii and then the national um, GINA legislation passed to protect people against genetic um, discrimination, but um, we already have it in our state law, so it doesn't really matter what the um, federal law is for our state. So um, it made it much easier. And so that's why we're able to really get in and tell people how to use genetic information and share genetic information to use across the lifespan to be able to be as healthy as possible and have preventive care using their genetic information. So the other part is we're allowed to, we, we work with a lot of other programs in the health department, like the cancer program. So with our state cancer program, we were able to add genetics into our state cancer plan to make sure that that was also highlighted that there are hereditary cancers and we need to do services to, to be able to serve people um, uh, that might have a risk for hereditary cancer. So being in the health department works really well because we have so many partners in both the public and private sector that we can really partner with a lot of people and not be threatening. I'm, I'm not selling anything. I'm not a, I'm not a hospital. I, I don't provide services that I bill for. So it makes me a very a non-threatening partner to a lot of organizations and a lot of people who are trying to do things, uh, research or uh, do services. So it, uh, I think it makes it really nice that you are a neutral party just trying to help people in a certain area. Wow, that's amazing. Um, Sylvia, you've written and published on the need for diversity in genetics and genomic workforce. And according to a 2022 professional status survey by the National Society of Genetic Counselors, 90% of genetic counselors in the United States are white. And the percentages of genetic counselors identifying as a Black or Hispanic, Latino, Latinx mix are not proportionally representative to the general population. Why do you think there's a lack of workforce diversity in genetic counseling? So first of all, I think there's a lack of knowledge of the profession in general. Um, I think that in a um, lot of minority families, they know what a doctor is. They know what a nurse is. They probably even know what a social worker is. But if you were to say genetic counseling, they would look at you and not understand. My own parents did not understand <laughs> what I was going into. And my own mother, after I've been in this profession for over 30 years, still has trouble explaining to her friends what I do. So um, genetic counseling is not a well-known profession, um, uh, not only in minority families, in, in, in white families too, but definitely in minority families. Um, there's also a lack of financial assistance for students to go into genetic counseling. You have tuition forgiveness if you become a doctor and work in an underserved area. There's also a lot of scholarships to become nurses, a lot of scholarships for other health professions. For genetic counseling, uh, genetic counselors are not recognized as an allied health profession. Um, they also are not recognized under Medicare right now. So they're, the federal programs that help health professions do not target genetic counselors to help because they're not a recognized profession. There's also a lack of role models. As you said, Amy, um, about 90% of genetic counselors in the last professional status survey reported that they were white. 
in all the years I've been a genetic counselor, the amount of minority students has changed a little, but not that much. And so um, we definitely have a lack of role models for minority students to look up to, uh, be mentored by, um, you know, even run into, like if someone's volunteering in a hospital to try to look at what kind of health professions they might go into, it would be rare that they would run into a non-white genetic counselor. So we really need to have more role models uh, and more leaders in the profession who are uh, racial and ethnic minority counselors that can go out and give talks and be visible and show that, hey, there are a lot of other genetic counselors, not just white genetic counselors. So you can enter this profession and have other colleagues be with you because I think sometimes students are a little scared to enter a profession where they know that they're going to be the very, very, very minority of the profession and how that might affect their career being um, such a small part of the profession. Sylvia, in your publication, Creation of the Minority Genetic Professional Network to Increase Diversity in the Genetic Workforce, you describe that the Health Resource and Service Administration, also known as HRSA, funded Western State Regional Genetic Network to create a minority genetic professional network to recruit and mentor high school students and undergraduate students to enter genetic professions, such as genetic counseling. How can our listener learn more about this network and get involved? Well, first of all, they can go to our website at minoritygenetics.org. Um, you can sign up to be part of the network. We have prospective students as part of the network. We have current um, trainees that are in genetic counseling training programs. And then, of course, we have genetic counselors. Um, we also have other genetics providers. We have PhDs, we have MD geneticists, but the majority of people in our network are genetic counselors because that is the majority of the genetics workforce um, uh, that we have. And so we have a mentorship program too, um, where students can sign up to, to be mentored, prospective students can sign up to be mentored. We're starting um, group mentoring. So there's certain common things that prospective students want help on, such as writing your personal statement or interviewing for a program, things like that, um, talking about uh, prerequisites for the graduate program, or just things like what do you do in the profession, giving them different ideas of different careers that genetic counselors might have. And so those ones, we do group mentoring sessions. We also have one-to-one -one mentoring, and um, we have what's called flash mentoring, which if you just have one issue or one question, you can pick someone with expertise in that area, and then you just um, get to talk to them for one or two sessions just to help you with that issue. Um, as part of NGPN, uh, we have our communication channel on Slack. So there's a lot of different postings. We have uh, groups by racial and ethnic background. We have uh, channels by prospective student, practicing counselors. There's lots of announcements. There's information about um, training programs that will have um, uh, webinars for prospective students. There's information about scholarships um, that are available. There's information uh, for current practicing genetic counselors about 
new jobs that are available and also other educational opportunities or um, opportunities for leadership uh, being on uh, being nominated for boards and things like that. So Slack is our communication channel. Um, we also host an annual virtual career fair. We have done it for the last three years. It's an idea that started during the pandemic that we should host a career fair. And then we realized that, oh, um, we could host it for everybody. Uh, and so almost all the genetic counseling training programs participate in a virtual career fair and the genetic counseling organizations participate in our virtual career fair. And we usually have about um, 1,500 participants every year uh, for the career fair. And it's always really gratifying to uh, get feedback that... Uh, our, our, our main feedback is, oh, I don't have enough time to visit all 53 programs, <laughs> but, but uh, they're always grateful that we can have the career fair uh, for them. So lots of things with our Minority Genetics Network. Uh, we also go to the National Society of Genetic Counselor Conference. Um, we go to American College of Medical Genetics Conference. So we provide support for um, current practicing um, genetic counselors and genetics providers too, because previous to our network, um, people said they could never connect with each other. They didn't know, not everyone goes to the same conferences at the same time. So they were, it was hard to connect and it was hard to find out about opportunities that uh, they might be able to partake of and um, also have the support to become leaders in the profession. So I think that the network has really helped um, be a central location for ethnic and uh, racial minority genetics professionals to find each other and support each other, um, which is always nice to see. Wow, that's amazing. And just hearing from earlier, you know, your experiences during your trainings from Judy Hall to George Cunningham's, I mean, the, the best of the best guided your path and it's so cool to see the way that you're guiding the path for you know the generations to come so this leads into our next question if you could talk a little bit more about whether you're involved in training the next generation of genetic counselors and when you do what do you tell them about newborn screening research so i actually give a lot of talks to um to genetic counseling training programs mainly about public health and about um, minority issues, diversity issues. Um, since I'm one of the few genetic counselors that work in public health, <laughs> I, get, I have to give a lot of talks on public health to genetic counseling training programs. Uh, one of the sad parts is I tell them about public health um, and working in public health and about newborn screening. Um, but I also have to give them the reality in that there are very few jobs um, that are comparable to what I have in the state of Hawaii Department of Health. And the other sad thing is that newborn screening programs are state-based programs that are usually civil service. And as I've uh, realized working with our newborn screening programs in our Western states, they just cannot compete for the salaries of the um, non-state jobs uh, for genetic counselors. Most states don't even have a uh, position that's named genetic counselor. So there's no way that they can um, match the, the uh, salaries that are in the 
outside private sector um, for genetic counselors. So even though I teach about the work that you can do um, in newborn screening, um, both regular day and all the, the research that we've done in newborn screening, it's seems like not a very viable pathway for new graduates that have a lot of student loan debt because they would have to take a job that pays less than they would get in other settings. So I'm hoping that that will change in the future, that newborn screening programs will be able to increase the salaries of genetic counselor positions in their programs. And then um, they will also be able to participate more in the newborn screening research that the programs are doing, such as the research before implementation of tests or the research about education for providers and families. All of that stuff genetic counselors would do great at. It's just that um, the jobs don't pay enough for them to compete with the private sector. And then the other thing is that um, when uh, I retire from this program next year, I am helping develop a um, genetic counseling training program for minority students. And what I want to do is really reach those students that cannot and would not travel to urban centers to go to graduate school. They're more tied to their community. They're more tied to their traditional cultural um, family uh, structure where you, you uh, stay within your family. You don't uh, go off to school somewhere else in a big city. And then um, the program will be distance learning to facilitate that. And then they can do their internships within their communities. And then hopefully when they graduate, they're going to go back to the or stay in their communities and work and be able to be trusted members of the community so that when the um, family in the community goes to see them, they'll trust them, know them, um, and they'll be able to provide genetic counseling services within the cultural um, uh, culture of their community and uh, hopefully if they don't speak English within the whatever language their community is speaking so that people can take advantage of um, entering research uh, that is well consented, um, being able to get services, being able to use genetic information to do preventive care and um, be healthy uh, as everybody else. So um, it's a long-term project because <laughs> uh, there, there are a lot of communities that need it and we can only train so many at one time, but it is definitely uh, something that I've agreed to help with and I'm very passionate about. So I really hope that uh, we can train the next generation of genetic counselors who can address the issues in marginalized and underserved communities way, way better than we are doing now. Thank you so much for sharing your news about starting a new program. We're going to be really excited to have you um, at Creighton and in Omaha and in the Midwest. It's going to be great. Well, yes, I have to thank Creighton for um, supporting this idea and uh, really spearheading 
the creation of the program and um, hopefully making it work. So I'm looking forward to working with the uh, lovely people I met at Creighton who are super friendly and supportive. And this program uh, definitely has a lot of backing from a lot of different uh, sectors that I work with. Sylvia, you've done so many different things and wore so many different hats um, at the State Department, and now you're going to be transitioning to training genetic counselors at the university. So can you share any story of inspiration that keeps you going? So I guess my most recent story will be kind of tied to winning my George Cunningham Award because I have benefited so much from the wonderful mentors that I've had in my life in various areas. And I am also a mentor for the NGPN network. Um, and I was mentoring a prospective student and um, we were going through, you know, what uh, her prerequisite should be doing her personal statement, practicing how to interview for the programs um, I think um, I had never done this one-to-one -one mentoring before. And um, as it got closer and closer and she was applying and waiting for the answers and waiting for the invitations for interviews, um, I just, I think I felt as nervous as she was <laughs> to do this. And then she did get her interviews and one of them was at Sarah Lawrence where I went. Um, I had to try really, 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 really hard not to contact my friends at Sarah Lawrence to um, try to influence them about her uh, as acceptance. And I, I didn't. I did not contact any of my friends at Sarah Lawrence because I thought it's not fair to other students. Um, and uh, she interviewed uh, and we have a match day for genetic counselors. So there's one day where the computer uh, national matching service matches students to programs. And the student I mentored uh, texted me at 6 a.m. and said that she got matched to Sarah Lawrence. Uh, so I was so, so happy. And it was, um, I, I felt as, I think, as nervous as she did, <laughs> too, and, and, and as happy as she was to be able to match to um, Sarah Lawrence. And I think she is in her first year right now, and she's going to do great. I, she's going to be a great genetic counselor, and she has all the uh, attributes that would make a great, great genetic counselor. And um, we're very lucky. Um, our NGPN members, uh, so many match to training programs this year, more than ever. And um, I think that's due to the support of our membership, being able to mentor them and help them along the way. And we still are supporting them as students. So um, we are very, very happy with um how NGPN has been able to help with getting students in and my own personal experience. Now I know what it feels to um, really mentor someone who will become a genetic counselor and be able to serve the community for 25 or 30 years once you graduate. So I think that's a, a little look into what it will be like to be a program director and have your graduating class <laughs> over and over again to, to help families. So um, that is definitely uh, very gratifying. And I do encourage anybody who has time um, or make time to mentor 
because that is the next generation that is out there that is going to, you know, uh, take over the world. And if you have a little bit of time to help mentor someone in what you do, then they can carry on what you're doing and hopefully be a force in the profession. That's so inspirational. And I think um, Dr. Chan and I will be there cheering your first graduating class on with you. Um, So I'll turn it back over to you. Thank you so very much, Sylvia, for sharing your career journey, the need for diversity in the workforce. And we'd like to end our podcast with our signature question. And that is, what does newborn screening research means to you? There's so many aspects of newborn screening research that are important. But with my work and my collaboration with families, my for me, I feel that I need newborn screening research to look at what has been done, how does that affect families, and learn from those stories to be able to inform as we move forward adding new disorders to the panel. So for me, it's all family-based. I need to know and want to know how this mandated program has affected families. And I, I don't think that there has been a lot of research in this area because as we keep adding new disorders, we cannot compound the challenges that families might face um, receiving a mandated test in the newborn period. Um, so that's, that's my personal, um, what newborn screening research should head towards for me. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm really supportive of all the different aspects of newborn screening research from implantation to new treatment and management, hopefully less expensive treatment and management, um, more, uh, hopefully the research will lead to more accessibility um, of uh, both newborn screening and um, treatment and management for the families. But my personal um, uh, goal is let's find out what the families um, are experiencing with what's happening with newborn screening now and in the past, and then use that to move forward in a more informed uh, way with families. Well, thank you, Sylvia, for joining us today on our podcast. You are welcome, especially on Genetic Counselor Awareness Day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Newborn Screening Spotlight. If you like our podcast, please subscribe and share an episode with your colleagues, friends, and family. Get involved. Stay informed. Help us advance discoveries. Together, Together let's, let's increase, increase the, the impact, impact of newborn screening research. research by listening to your stories. stories.